really doesn't matter how many times I see that, it's funny every single time. Uh, how are we doing this morning, North Point? Oh, you can do better than that. How are we doing this morning, North Point? There it is. There it is. Hey, I got a question for you, okay? I need you to raise your hand and keep them up for me if this is you. But who, I know it's June, but who likes to go Black Friday shopping? Come on, raise them up proud, raise them up proud, right? I got some, okay, keep your hands up for me real quick. If you raise them, keep them up, keep them up, be proud. Okay, if you did not raise your hand, look at these people, they're the crazies, okay? I've warned you, they've been identified, you know who they are. Please move accordingly. So these are the crazies, right? I was never much for Black Friday shopping. My mother and my siblings, on the other hand, they got up every Black Friday before any sane person should to go check out all of the deals. To hear less sleeping and more shopping was like nails on a chalkboard to me. It just wasn't my thing. I got married a few years ago. My wife convinced me to try this Black Friday shopping with her mom and her aunt. And at first I relented, but she promised we wouldn't get up before the sun. I could have breakfast and I could stay in the car as long as I just drove, right? Because finding a parking spot is apparently one of the hardest things to do. So I agreed. Those sounded like acceptable terms. That's what we would do. We pull in. I get to Menards. I find my parking spot. I drop them off. But after about an hour and a half in a Menards parking lot, you get a little bored, right? So I decided, you know what, I'm going to check and see what all this madness is really about. Menards, in their infinite wisdom, had two entrances to their store. One entrance remained an entrance. The other entrance was only an exit. Menards did not warn me about this exit only that they had just put in instead of an entrance. So naturally, I walk in the exit only. And I find a plethora of people snaked around 10 different aisles, each with two shopping carts full of Christmas joy trying to check out. Now my problem is I have to get to the back of the store to find my wife. This also happened to be a problem for all of these people who did not want me to pass. Okay, So during this time I probably got a hundred dirty looks, hip checked by four soccer moms, and I played goalie with an elderly woman in her rocker in one of the aisles, right? Guys, this, this was ugly, okay? This was ugly. It was pure chaos everywhere I went. So if you are one of those people who raised their hands this morning and said, yes, I love to go Black Friday shopping, you do not have to worry about getting that $4 blender away from my hands come November. It is all yours. I do not need it. I will not be out there with you. This is yours. Most of us have a story similar to this, right? Whether it's been at a concert or Black Friday or uh, some sporting event or something, where things just seem to turn ugly quick, right? Like sanity left the room and we are just in this ugly, chaotic situation. We all know what this feels like from time to time. We're starting a new series this summer, as you can see, called Ugly Faith. Ugly Faith. And we're going to take a character from the Bible each week and we're going to see how they played out their faith in spite of the ugly. So if you'd like, go ahead, take a picture of that, post it on Facebook when you check in. There'll be a new one next week for you as well. But if you have your North Point app, go ahead and bust that out this morning. Uh, We've got a little outline on there for you. You can follow along with some fill-in-the-blanks, the the verses and things like that, sermon-based questions. So I'll give you a second to pop that up, let it refresh. But we're going to start this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. 
Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. See, this verse is going to give us a working definition for faith. Confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. In other words, simply put, this means trust in God. Faith is trust in God. See, that's a simple definition, right? That's easy for us to understand, but at times it can be really difficult for us to put this into practice. Trust isn't easy for most of us. In fact, I think most of us actually have a fear when it comes to trust. I believe that there are three things that we fear most when it comes to trust. First, we have this fear of failure. Fear of failure. Trust is tough for us because it means giving up control. And we love control. We like to be king of the remote so we can decide tonight which Netflix show we're going to binge an entire season of, right? If you're like me, you like to drive separate because you like control. You like to know when you can stay in a place and when you want to leave. We like control. We like to be able to decide these things. If we give up control, that means that we don't get to decide the outcome. And that that outcome might be failure. We no longer get to decide what destination we end up. And even worse, tonight you could wind up watching a Hallmark movie. Okay, yeah, so we don't like this. We have a fear of failure. Secondly, we have a fear of loss. A fear of loss. See, trust is hard because it means laying everything on the line. If we trust someone or if we trust something else, that means that we are risk losing our investment. We might not get back exactly what we put into that relationship or that agreement or that project. We fear that we may have less than what we started with. And the philosophy, less is more, just doesn't seem to fit into our 401k, right? We fear we may wind up with a loss. We also have this fear of the unknown. This is where trusting means moving into something or some place that we know little or nothing about. We have no real experience to guide us, but we have an imagination full of possibilities of what could be around the corner. Trust can leave us with very little ability to prepare because we don't know what might happen next. So when we talk about trusting God being confidence in what we hope for, an assurance of what we do not see, it's easy to see why that's not always an easy thing for us to do. We have uh, what seems like some very real, some very rational doubts and fears when it comes to trust. Well, let's look at verse 2. Uh, Hebrews eleven two says, This is what the ancients were commended for. Very simply, this is a setup verse. This connects our definition of faith, trust in God, with everything else that's going to happen in this chapter. This verse connects what we just saw with everything else. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to his mainly Hebrew audience in this passage is to remind them about their heritage. See, the Hebrew people have a history full of faith. 
If you look at throughout this chapter, you're going to see times where God has used several men and women by their faith. If you look, you'll see the phrase by faith pop up again and again and again. And it references uh, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Moses, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samson, Rahab, lions, tigers. You get the point, right? By faith pops up all over in this chapter. And God did some incredible things. And he used these people by their faith to bring about his redemption story to mankind. These are the stories that lead to Jesus. It was by their faith. But we didn't call this series by faith. We didn't call this series redemptive faith. We didn't call this series Hebrew faith. This is ugly faith, right? The word ugly, it sounds ugly, right? Like, we don't even like to say that. Say, everybody say ugly. Now, you got you to gotta get your bottom jaw into it. Give it an ugly. Yeah, ugly, right? I mean, you just feel like you got to wash your mouth out now, or just from saying ugly, right? It just doesn't seem right. See, these aren't stories of good people in good situations who did really good things. As we explore this summer, you're going to see some really ugly situations, and some really ugly people who did some really ugly things. Part of God's redemption story, in fact, most of the stuff leading up to Jesus is ugly. But in spite of all this ugliness, God is still able to use these people by their faith for his plan and for his purposes. So we're going to dive into the ugly this morning. We're going to see how God takes ugly people in ugly situations who may have done some ugly things and use them to bring salvation and redemption and goodness into the world. So we're going to hop down here to Hebrews 11.7. We're going to grab a character out of Hebrews every week and we're going to talk about their story. Today in Hebrews 11.7 is where we start, but spoiler alert here. Before we read this verse, I want you to know, everything else we're going to talk about this morning is summed up in this one verse. Okay, so I want you to read it with me, and then I want you just to erase it from your mind. Okay, I want you to look at this passage, I want to look at this story with fresh eyes. So if this is the first time you've heard it, or maybe you've taught this story in kids' world before, I want you to try and look at this with fresh eyes this morning. So we've got Hebrews eleven seven. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy, what's that word? Fear, built an ark to save his people. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So go ahead this morning, erase it from your mind, flip on over to the opposite side of the Bible, Genesis, the very beginning. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, 5, we're going to see the story of Noah. It says this, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe them from the face of the earth, the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When verse 6 here says that the Lord regretted that he made human beings on earth, the word that it's using here is the word atsav. Say atsav. Atsav. And a more apt explanation of this word is actually the word grieved. 
grieved. This isn't God saying, oh, whoops, look what I did. No, this is God saying, ah, this hurts. This is a deep-seated pain. This is grieving. This is hurting deep down inside his heart. God was hurting watching his image bearers become so inclined to evil in their own way. It caused a great amount of pain to watch his creation do these things to themselves. This isn't some angry, vengeful God who doesn't have control of his emotions and wants to lash out. Rather, this is a hurt creator who has seen his image bearers run away from the life that they were supposed to have. So God decrees that he's going to wipe the earth clean. In essence, the God who just a few chapters before this had created all of existence is now going to decreate the world. Why? Because mankind wasn't satisfied being an image bearer of God. But rather, verse 5 showed us that they wanted to be God. Guys, this is our ugly. This is our ugly. We found it. The entire world is ugly to the point that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's about as ugly as it can get. The entire human race is full of wickedness and rebellion, and it's so bad that it breaks God's heart when he looks down and he sees his image bearers, the best of his creation. This is an ugly, ugly situation. But check out verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here he is, guys. This is our by faith character. Our by faith character. Why did Noah find favor in God's eyes? Look at 9 and 10. It says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. Look at this. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The entire world is ugly. It's an ugly situation. Verse 11 goes on to tell us that it's corrupt and it's full of violence, but that Noah is walking with God. Noah, in spite of all the ugliness around him, is trusting God. It's by faith. So then what happens? God decides to spare Noah, and he decides to start over with him and his family. All the way to verse 21, God lays out a plan for Noah to build a giant ark and fill it with supplies and animals, and God would make sure that they don't die when he wipes away the earth. See, now, if you're like me and you hear this, that God is getting ready to kill everyone and everything and start over with Noah and his family on a boat, you're beginning to think maybe, why in the world would God do that? Doesn't that seem cruel? Doesn't that seem cruel? How can I, how can I worship how can I serve a God that is so cruel to do something like that? Now, guys, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that I have the answer to every single question. I don't. And there's a lot of great questions when you read Noah that I wish you would explore and just dive into the scriptures and seek out the answers that are there. And I'd love to talk to you later on this morning and maybe point you in the right directions on some of these things. But you, know, you can ask, what, was it a global flood or was it regional? If everybody kind of lived in an area, uh, were there penguins? on the ark. Uh, what about dinosaurs? Were dinosaurs on the ark? I'd love to push you in the right direction on all of these questions, but uh, to be honest this morning, we just don't have time to dive into all of those things. But I do want to address one question. Is God cruel for killing 99.9% .9 
of all living things. I can give you what I know. Here's what I've found. I know that God is perfect. I know that God is holy, that he is just, that he's loving, that he's righteous, that he's merciful, and that he's all-powerful. I know that God does not and cannot sin. I know that God and sin spread away faster than oil and water. They cannot be a part of one another. So when I read the story and I see that God was atzav or grieved at the heart, at all the actions of his image bearers, it shows me that God is too loving and too merciful to let his image bearers, his creation, continue to hurt themselves in this way by continuing in their sin. See, God is both just and merciful in ridding the world of sin, but he's also loving enough to continue his redemption plan for mankind through Noah. In fact, 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah reached out and that he warned others, but that they wouldn't listen. They continued to reject God and do what they, do what they wanted to do. Now, couldn't God have just changed everybody's hearts? Couldn't he have just forced everybody to be good? Yeah, he could have. He's powerful enough. But I think that's a whole other level of cruel when God has to force himself upon others. See, this is a hard thing to wrestle with, but I believe that as you begin to understand the holiness of who God is, it can become easier to rest in the idea that God truly is loving and good and merciful and just even when he decreates the earth. Hopping back into our story here, we see uh, God has told Noah to get ready to build an ark, to gather up his family and enough kinds of every animal to repopulate the earth because he's going to wipe it clean with the flood. So how does Noah respond here in verse 22? It says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. See, that's faith. That's faith. The Bible doesn't tell us if Noah had ever seen rain before. It doesn't tell us if he lived on a coastal city where they saw giant boats all the time. It does tell us that Noah lived in a world that was ugly. That mankind was consumed by evil and that Noah found favor in God's eyes. And God gave Noah a way to be saved and redeemed and part of a new creation. And Noah trusted God at his word. Noah did by faith. Genesis 7 goes on to tell us that uh, God sent Noah and his family and the animals into the ark and that Noah listened and then God sent the flood from the ground and the sky and he wiped everything off of the earth and that Noah is left floating on top of the water for like 150 days here. See, I want to stop here for a second and I want to look back at those fears that we talked about at the beginning. These fears that we have when it comes to faith, uh, failure, loss, and the unknown. See, Noah is given this giant task to save his family and to save animals by building a large bloat, a large boat before he kills all of humanity. Do you ever think Noah thought he could fail? Do you ever think Noah thought he could fail? I mean, how in the world is he supposed to do this? That's a huge project, and that's a lot of pressure on that project. And I'm sure there were plenty of critics questioning Noah's ability and maybe even his sanity. He might have looked like a Black Friday shopper, guys. People could have been questioning Noah left and right. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever felt that God told you to do something that just seemed risky or just seemed like it maybe was over your head? If God is really calling me to do that, it's going to affect my mortgage and the way that I live my life. If God is calling me to change my job, 
that's going to put my reputation on the line. I don't know if I'm capable of doing what God has asked me to do. It's a big ask or a really big project. I'm sure when Noah heard the blueprints for this God-sized task that he had to feel overwhelmed. But trusting by faith means letting go of control and trusting that the plan that God has placed in front of you. He's already equipped you for what he's called you. And he doesn't call you to something that he won't see through with you. So then what about loss? Noah had to invest more time, more money, and more resources into that boat than we can even begin to imagine. I mean, building this ark had to be Noah's life work. I don't know what profession Noah was, but if he was a shepherd, I think it'd be really hard to build an ark and a sheep empire at the same time. If Noah was a tradesman, maybe even a carpenter, I'm sure it had to be difficult to build a successful carpentry business when you have such a large side project of your own going on. Noah invested everything into this. All of his investments, resources, and his future were staked in that ark. There's no backup plan for Noah. Why would he invest in a world that was about to be ruined anyway? Even if Noah sold flood insurance, I'm positive the guy didn't make a profit on this. What investment has God called us to trust in? Where are our resources being poured into? I'm not saying be irresponsible with your finances or your time, but rather I'm saying that maybe the wisest thing we can do is to invest in the things that God has called you to do, which means that trusting God is not going to leave us with a loss. Look at Philippians 1.6. It says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's reminding us in this verse that we can be confident. God will see us through to anything that he's called us to. That God doesn't leave his children high and dry, but rather he carries them to completion. Jesus assures us in Matthew 6 that God is going to take care of all of our needs just as he cares for the birds in the air. When we invest in God's calling for us, there is no loss because we're investing in him. So then how about the unknown? See, I doubt no one knew what it looked like to run a zoo on top of a wooden cruise liner with his family. Right? I don't think Noah had a degree in zoology. I doubt he did an internship with Royal Caribbean. Noah had a ton of unknowns in his life. What am I going to do about that smell? How do I ration all this food? How long are we going to be out there? Where are we going to stop at? What do I do if the giraffe gives birth? Do I help it or do I live stream it on Facebook, right? Noah's got a ton of questions during this time. And we all have questions. We all ask God things all the time. Am I in the right job? Am I doing the right things? Is this the right person for me? Is this what's supposed to be right for my kids? And we don't know. Faith in the unknown means that we don't have to have the plan. In fact, I believe that most of the time God doesn't give me the plan because I would try to fix it. I would try to fix his plan. No, God, look, you need to put the llamas on the opposite side of the boat. I'll bunk next to the penguins, okay? We ain't doing that. They spit, they smell, it's weird. God, look, if you would let it rain just a little bit less, this whole thing would go by a lot quicker. 
God, if I didn't have to go through that pain, this would be so much easier. God, if you would just provide for me that raise, I'd be able to give like you want me to give. Look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's plans are better than our plans. His way of doing things is better than our way of doing things. How do we know this? Because Genesis 6, 5 just pointed out that when we do it our way, we mess up. Our thoughts go to evil all the time. We mess it up. God doesn't need me to fix his plans. He just needs me to trust it by faith. Moving on to Genesis 8, verse 1. It says, but, Noah, or, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent, uh, check this out, he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. See, this is really cool. I don't want you guys to miss this. That word used here in verse 1 is the word ruach. Ruach. This is used earlier in Genesis 1-2 when God was getting ready uh, to create the earth. It says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word translated here as spirit is ruach. Ruach. Ruach means breath. Breath. I had a friend put it to me this way. Put your hand in front of your face. Everybody do. Put your hand in front of your face and say, Ruach. Ruach. Right, do you feel that on your hand? What you're feeling on your hand, that's, that's ruach. That's ruach that you're feeling on your hand. So when it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, what it's saying is that God is breathing onto the waters. And when it says that God sent a wind over the earth and that the waters receded, it's saying that God breathed onto the waters. Now why does that matter? Why does that matter? I think it shows us two things. First, that God is showing us that he's starting his creation again. It parallels the first creation story to show that God is sticking to his word and he's recreating the world. That God is not done with us. He's not leaving us on a boat or with animals, but he is starting again in us. That's powerful. Next, we see both in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 8, the world is empty and it's covered in water. And water in the Bible is a symbol for chaos. And God's Spirit breathes calm over the chaos. God is bringing order to calamity. Waters begin to sink back, and eventually chapter 8 goes on to show us that Noah and his family um, get, a, get off the ark after about a year, and they begin a new life with a new creation. The ugliness that surrounded them, their ugly situation is gone, and because of their faith, God has spared them and is going to use them to change the world. See, I love that all of this begins when the Spirit of God comes over the chaos. You might be in an ugly situation right now, but trust God by faith that his spirit can bring calm in your chaos. That when everything and everyone around you seems to be falling apart, when it seems like the world is only evil all the time, trust God. And by faith, he can overcome the ugly 
and see you through whatever it is that he's called for you to do and wherever it is that he's called for you to go. It may look like failure or loss or the unknown, but trust God and his calling and he will bring ruach when we need it. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, God, that you are ruach in our life, Father. God, that you're grieved when you see us far from you. But God, you are just, you are merciful, and you are loving enough, Father, to take care of us no matter what ugly situation we may be in. Whatever ugliness may be in our life, God, we know that by trusting in you, you're gonna take care of us. Father, that you're gonna see us through every step of the way. That it takes by faith, God, knowing that you're not going to leave us at a loss. You're not going to leave us in the unknown, Father, but that you'll guide us every single way that we go, Lord. God, I pray your blessings as we move forward, God, that we would that we would take hold of the callings that you've put in our life, Father, the things that you've called us to do, the places that you've called us to go, Father, so that we can spread your ruach into the world. We love you, Father, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.